Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Church of the Redeemer. As my dad uh, just referred to, we are in the middle of a series on leadership in the church, uh, preparing to nominate elders and deacons, which are the officers in the church that we find in the New Testament, to uh, get ready to become what our denomination calls a particular church, which just means that we will be self-governing, that we will have uh, a body of elders who exercise authority and rule, and a body of deacons who lead us out in mercy and mission uh, you know, to the city. And so in, in doing that, um, this particular uh, message this morning has been on the calendar for about six months, and I've, been known, it's, know, I, I've known it's coming. I was... Um, I was accused of waiting until the holiday weekend when everybody would be gone to, to tackle difficult subjects, uh, and that is not true. It just happened that it fell today, um, but we do need to discuss this issue of, of the roles of men and women and how they differ and how we make sense of those. I will be honest, I, I choose the passages that we do as call to worships and assurances of pardon. I chose the one from Isaiah this morning because I do feel like I'm trembling before God's word uh, and before you. <laughs> And so um, I just, just pray for all of us humility, and you'll see what I mean as soon as we start to read these passages in First Corinthians and First Timothy, because they're just hard. And so I'm going to ask you for great patience and great um, grace as we try to grapple and just grasp toward the truth together this morning. So let's, let's talk about how uh, the roles of men, men and women get fleshed out in the congregation as we think about leadership in the church from these passages. First in First Corinthians 11. Excuse me, and then from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay? All right, let's read. My voice is tightening up. (laughs) Because I don't even want to read these scriptures. But they're there. And that's why we have to deal with this, because they're there. And so we have to deal with it. So let's read. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you, Paul writes to the Corinthians. But I want you to understand... That the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let 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 her cover her head. For... A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but women, woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women are not independent of man, nor man of women. For as women, woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, that is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is, her, is it her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And then from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word. These are controversial issues, and we're not all going to agree with one another. 
So as I was thinking about approaching these texts, our commitment to one another, I really believe, is going to be put to the test. And by that I mean, can we disagree and stay related? Can we? And I think the answer is yes, especially with issues that are just as muddy as these are. Uh, but as we approach it, the real issue is the, the question, or the real question that we have to deal with is the authority of the Scripture in our lives together as a church. Whether, whether we will put ourselves above the Word and stand over it and try to make sense of it, or whether we will come underneath it. In other words, does the Bible, is the Bible a book that we take and we thumb through it, you know, and we say, you know, I like this, no, I don't really like that, I like this, I don't like that, or does the Bible, God's Word to us, thumb through our lives and say, you know, I like that. I don't like that. I like that. And so we got to deal with the issue of authority. And by that I mean I don't mean that what I have to say this morning is the only possible interpretation of these things. And if you disagree, you're obviously not on the side of truth. Don't mean that. I'm really talking about the way we posture ourselves, really wrestling with the implication of these things being God's words, the parts we like and the parts we don't like, and not just man's opinions. And so we have to do everything we can to understand and make applications as best we can, but at the same time be humble and teachable and be willing to learn from those who disagree with us. And so that's where we are. Now the issue that Paul deals with in these two passages is just this, is a question. Are the roles of men and women simply cultural constructs? In other words, according to Paul and what he has to say, is, is what Paul has to say about men and women and their roles in the church just reflections of the cultural values and norms and practices of his day, or is there a deeper truth that's being revealed in what the Bible has to say about these issues? And we have to deal with that as we work through 1 Corinthians, because if you look there in 1 Corinthians 11, while we affirm the idea of male headship, which Paul talks about in verse 3, there aren't any women wearing head coverings in the room this morning, at least I don't think. Nobody's here, Nobody, you know, none of the women are here with head coverings on their heads, so... The principle Paul is going after is male headship, and the expression of that principle in his particular context in Corinth in the first century was women wearing head coverings, as verse 10, symbols of authority. But if the head covering, now here's the sticky wicket, if the head covering thing was cultural, then why isn't the male headship thing also cultural? And how do you tell the difference? You know, are gender differences just cultural constructs, or is there something deeper for us to learn about what it means for us to be men and women? And the answer to that, I really believe, is that there is a transcendent creation design truth about men and women that we're being taught here in the Scripture. That needs to be applied, then, to every specific cultural context. There's a, let me say that again, there's a transcendent creation design truth that's being taught that then needs to be applied to every specific cultural context, ours included. Now let me argue this out with you for just a minute. My introduction is going to be really long, uh, and then the rest of our time will be shorter. Now, Paul wrote these words in what we're going to call a traditionalist culture. A traditionalist cultural concept, excuse me, a traditionalist cultural context that affirmed, let me say it this way, the authority of men over women, but did not affirm equality between men and women. Women hardly had any rights in Paul's day. They were a little more than property. There was authority, but no equality. Okay? Authority, no equality. It's interesting that in some parts of our own society, this is carried over in the name of theological conservatism, but it's really just social conservatism and has nothing to do with theological conviction. Let's be honest. And so you hear here that a man 
having authority over his wife, you know, you hear this kind of thing. A man having authority over his wife means that she's got to do what he tells her to do and she's not supposed to question or disagree with him. That women have no say. You know, that the man, the men do everything. They make all the decisions and it's the woman's job to capitulate her desires to his. That the men are the ones who go out and hunt and gather food, you know. And the woman's job is to stay home and make sure his dinner is on the table, hot and ready the minute he walks in the door and that his clothes have been ironed and that his children, his children are well behaved. Right. Somebody just laughed. I mean, that is radical social conservatism, conservatism that has nothing to do with the Bible. It's rubbish. The Bible does not affirm authority without equality. It doesn't. If anything, what you see in Paul's writings is that they challenge the notion of authority without equality. You see it in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul, some of the things Paul says there, he says, you know, in verse, in verse um, 11, the, the, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. All things are of God. There's equality between them. And Paul would have been seen, you know, and been considered a very liberal person in his day in regards to the roles of men and women in his culture. I mean, we never, see, what, what we don't do is we're very fond of quoting Ephesians 5.23, which says, wives, submit to your husbands. But nobody quotes Ephesians 5.21, two verses before that says, submit to one another. And Paul would have been considered very liberal. I mean, he made, it's, it was Galatians and not Titus, and the typo was my, my fault. But in Galatians 3, which we read for our assurance of pardon, Paul says even so much that there's neither male nor female. There's no, no longer even categories, identity marker, categories of status. that Men and women don't even mean anything. Men and women are, have been raised to the same exact equal status with one another because of the work of Christ. And so Paul wrote out of this traditional con- context and would have been considered very liberal. We, however, live in a very different world. We live in a post-feminism world that really believes the opposite. Our society typically believes in equality without authority. In other words, the pendulum has swung. All the way over here, now we've thrown out the idea of authority altogether, and so the overriding consensus in our culture would be that you can't have equality if there is authority. The only way to truly have equality is to get rid of any concept of authority. The Bible challenges that idea too. It affirms both at the same time. Both at the same time. So what's going to happen is, is when the Bible, uh, what the Bible says is going to confront the idolatries and the distortions on both sides. The Bible affirms the idea of authority in marriage and in the church, and that's going to feel harsh to you if you lean towards a feminist understanding of these things. And so it's going to say things like in 1 Corinthians 11.3, that the, the head of the woman is her husband. You know, 1 Corinthians I mean, 11.7, the man... You know, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And you know, those are going to be hard. But at the same time, the same time the Bible affirms equality. Equality. It affirms both authority and equality. And that's how you know that there's a deeper truth that's being unveiled for us because it's a truth that transcends and challenges the cultural expressions of gender roles, both traditionalist and feminist. None of us, none of us, not a single one of us, in this room, occupy a perfect perspective that is universal and not prejudiced in any way. (laughs) We all read the Bible and think some things are great and some things are horrible because of our social location, our experience. And the Bible isn't God's word. I need to just say this. The Bible isn't God's word because you agree with it. The way you know God is speaking is that it challenges you, it disagrees with you, it challenges your prejudices. We can't expect to agree with God 100% of the time. That would be galactically arrogant. So... 
here's what I've gotten myself into this morning. If I do my job well this morning, here's what's going to happen. Those of you who lean toward a more traditionalist view are going to be suspicious of me and worry that I'm turning into a liberal. You're going to accuse me of being a feminist. At the same time, those of you who lean towards a feminist view are going to think that I'm a traditionalist, that I want to keep women barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen cooking cooking dinner for their man. I'm not a traditionalist, I'm not a feminist, because the Bible isn't traditionalist or feminist. And the gospel application of the role... And so what that just means is I have no chance of getting out of this alive, okay? Can you just, can you just pray for me in that? I have no chance. Do you hear me? If you see me hobbling around later, it's because I stepped on a mine somewhere in this thing and got my leg blown off. And I hope I just get out of it with just that. But the gospel application of the roles of men and women doesn't fit any any one cultural expression. It's something altogether different. The Bible affirms both authority and equality at the same time. The Bible affirms both authority and equality. It's not either or, it's both and. And that's true of so many things. So what we have to do is we have to... And here, doesn't this make sense? I mean, what we have to do is we have to look to Jesus. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, 3, we're told that God is his head. And that means that he is in submission to God, but that submission doesn't imply inequality. At the same time, we're told that Jesus Christ is the head of every man, and that means he's also in a position of authority. So Jesus is both the authority and the one in submission, and he does them both perfectly. And so we've got to look to him to help us with these things. So there are going to be two things that we want to talk about this morning. You'll see them there as your two points. We want to talk a little bit more about equality, then we want to talk a little bit about authority, and then we want to apply these things to the home and the church, and then specifically to what we've been trying to do with officers and deacons. And I've got a lot to say, and I'm going to go too long, but I, want you to, I just want you to know my goal is to get to that table as fast as I possibly can this morning. Okay? I just want you to know that. <laughs> I'm so thankful that we get to celebrate communion this morning. And I promise, I won't, make, I won't assume that if you ref- refrain from taking it, it means you're upset with me, okay? We'll just make that deal. Um, so, let's just, here we go, okay? Let's talk about equality. And to do that, we have to deal with this issue of headship. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that word head there is a Greek word that means source or authority, so... What Paul is saying is that we are in submission to Jesus' authority, just as the wife lives in submission to her husband's authority, just as Jesus lived in submission to the Father's authority and initiative. And that's what Paul means. So, just take the phrase, the, husband, the head of the wife is her husband. And then in even stronger language in 1 Timothy, Paul says that women are not to exercise authority over men in the church. So, men have authority over women, but according to Paul, women are not to exercise authority over men. Now, when we hear that, When we hear that, here's how we interpret it. It means, it must mean, that men always get what they want. That the woman just has to sit and be quiet and can't be a part of any of the decision making. Or, somehow that women exist to serve men, but not vice versa. That women aren't allowed, you know, obviously women aren't allowed to be strong or independent or have their own opinion about things. Men are in all ways superior to women. And so if they abuse their authority, well, too bad, so sad, you just got to live with it. It's just the way it is, you know. And often men interpret their headship in this way, that they think it means they're entitled to unquestioned control of the television remote. 
or the family schedule or the checking account or whatever it might be. And then, unfortunately, women interpret it this way too and think they're not allowed to disagree or challenge their husbands or call him to repentance. And that's really sad because that's their job. And the error of the traditionalist mindset is that it often plays out something like this, and you'll laugh, you'll probably laugh, but I mean, this really is true in many places. It sounds sounds like this. Men are strong, women are weak. Men are smart, women are stupid. Men are natural-born leaders. Women should just follow. Men are superior. Women are inferior, and it's led to all kinds of crazy ideas, and still does. Things like women don't need to vote, or women shouldn't serve in the military, or women shouldn't be officers in the military, and we definitely don't ever need a woman president. You see, this idea of authority leads to inequality. It leads to inequality sometimes. And I can completely understand people being upset about that. It's ludicrous. And it's not what the Bible means when it talks about headship. But now let me just say something. The solution is not feminism because the agenda of the radical feminist movement is just to reverse the power structure. It's not, they're not after equality. They just want to reverse the power structure. And if you pay attention... And if you watch the sitcoms on TV and if you read the New York Times, the message now is just the opposite. Women are strong. Men are weak. Women are smart. Men are stupid. Right? Women can do anything men can do and do it better. So there's just this struggle between, you know, that goes all the way back to the garden and is expressed in every, you know, classroom and every public school. Boys against girls. Right? We always want to team up. And in both these areas, both sides are out to prove their dominance. And if we're not careful, all we'll be doing is trading places, trading in, in affirming equality, we'll just be trading male superiority and dominance for female superiority and dominance. And the Bible values equality. It teaches equality. Not male dominance, not female dominance. Equality. And the key phrase in all of this is in verse 3. And if you see it, it, it Paul says that the head of Christ is God. You see that there? See, that phrase, the head of Christ is God, helps us understand what Paul means when he says the head of the woman is her husband. Jesus lived under the authority of his father to the degree that over and over again in the Gospels he says things like, I can do nothing on my own. Translation, I don't don't have my own will. You know, I only speak what the father tells me to speak. All these things. Very childlike, very submissive, very submissive. But the submission doesn't imply inequality because for centuries, since the 4th century when the Nicene Creed came out, since the 4th century, the church has affirmed that the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are the same, equal in power and glory to one another. So follow the logical implication with me there. That means that headship does not imply superiority. It doesn't mean that one party is more important or better than the other. The way the Trinity works is that though all three of the persons are equal in power and glory, yet they are constantly submitting themselves to one another. Take Jesus, for example. And in Philippians 2, what do we read of him there? We read that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He voluntarily took on a subordinate role and submitted himself to the will of the Father to the point of death. Does that imply that he is somehow inferior to the Father, no way. If anything, it makes him more glorious, more beautiful, more worthy of praise. You see, there was a mission, and to accomplish that mission, each of the three persons of the Trinity had a role to play, and Jesus was the one who played the role of submitting himself underneath the Father 
Not because he was lesser, but because it was required of him for the sake of the mission. And that's the idea. See, that's the idea of equality that's getting, that's getting put to the test here. You see, the dominant cultural idea is this, that equality equals sameness. That in order to be equals, we have to be the same. We have to act the same. We have to dress the same. We have to work the same jobs. We have to play the same roles in society. And our culture is really pushing in that direction. And for, most part, for the most part, it's a very good thing, but it's founded on a wrong idea. And that wrong idea is that it's trying to establish equality between men and women on the basis of sameness. Whereas in the Bible, in the Bible, men and women are equal because in their created design, they are different and complementary. When the old catechisms ask the question, how did God create man in his own image? The answer is always he created them. Can anybody finish it? Male and female in his own image. And so what that's teaching is just this. There's something about the masculinity of men that uniquely communicates part of who God is. And there's something about the femininity of women that does the same. And where the lines get blurred between male and female, the image of God and the glory of God gets blurred. And they both have to be there. They, they both have to be there. They both were there at the very beginning. And in the first chapter of Genesis, the man, you remember, is all alone. And then God creates a woman to be his helper. And it would be so easy to read that and to think, like in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, that the woman, that meant somehow she's his helper, so somehow she's subservient to him. But that's not true. Because that word helper there doesn't mean lesser, it means different. The emphasis is on the difference of being complementary to him. She was strong in areas where he was weak, and weak where he was strong, and that's the idea. The woman fit him, Moses writes there in in Genesis. She completed him. He needed her because she could do things he couldn't do. And it's the same word, that word helper, that is used over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures for how God comes alongside of his people to help and rescue them. He's our helper. Are we going to claim that he's subservient to us? See, that's what Genesis is trying to teach. The man needed the woman. The same way we all need God's help. And that's the basis for equality. There's there's equality. I mean, there's a foundational equality right there in the middle of this male-female issue. So, and that equality, that equality that's there is based on the man and the woman being different and complementary. And if those differences are there, if they're a part of our created design, then they're good and they, they're there for a purpose. You see, the man and the woman were given a mission, and within that mission, they each have a role to play. As Christians, we believe this. We really do. And so Christian marriages and families and even the church is going to look much different in the surrounding culture. And for this reason, and it's this issue, secondly, not only of equality, but of authority. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians eleven three, that man is the head of his wife. And that means God has put him in a leadership role. And in 1 Timothy 2, he says, I do not permit women to teach or have authority. Now, I want you to see, as we talk about this issue of authority, I want you to see that in both cases, Paul makes an appeal for God's design and creation. Do you see this? So he's arguing these things out in Hebrews chapter, I mean, not Hebrews 11, but in 1 Corinthians 11. And then you get down to verse 8. And look at verse 8 with me. And then he says there, he begins at 4. In other words, this is the justification. He's give, That's a purpose clause in the original language. This is the reason, this is my argument for why everything I've said should be. And he says, 4, man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was he created for woman, but woman for man. And then again, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13. Chapter, verse two, chapter 2, verse 12 says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Verse 13 says, for, again, this is my argument, this is the reason, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And so in both places, 
The Apostle Paul takes us back to creation, to the design of God in creating male and female in the garden. And we all know, and this is the part that just really scares me. I mean, it scares me for what, I mean, how it's going to be received. But, you know, we all know in the garden that the the serpent, and the old catechism teach that what happened in the garden is that though man was established in the garden as the authority figure and as the leader and the head of his wife, the serpent, when he came to tempt them, who did he come to? He came to the woman. And what is very clear about what the Bible teaches there in those first pages of the Bible is that in the same way you know, that the serpent came and used the woman, and then what happens is, is as the story goes along, God comes and he curses them, and he curses Eve for her disobedience, and he curses the snake for his you know, tempting them to sin, and then he comes to the man last of all, and to the man he curses the man, and the justification he gives for the curse that he puts upon the man is, you listen to your wife. Now that doesn't mean men shouldn't listen to their husbands. I mean, that's stupid. I wish we could edit that out, because that's going to make me look really dumb. It doesn't mean that men shouldn't listen to their wives. What, what the book is going, what that story is going after is just this idea that men have been put in this particular authority, leadership role in the family structure, and when that, when, when that gets out of whack, and when the, you know, the woman got out ahead of her husband, and didn't consult with him, and took the initiative on her own, and they didn't act as a team in the roles that they were given, things begin to fall apart really quickly. You listened to your wife, God said. You didn't lead her. You weren't there. You were absent. The devil got to her while you were on vacation. Now, the implication was just this, that Adam was supposed to lead, that men are supposed to lead. And that, again, that doesn't imply superiority. Remember equality. Women lead too, all the time. But in, but in these roles that we're being put in, the authority given to man is not existential. In other words, it's not something that's just a part of the makeup of who he is. You know, he's the crown of creation. And, you know, it's, it's functional. There's a mission, and the only way to get the mission done is for everybody to, to take the roles they've been assigned. It doesn't mean... You know, it doesn't mean all the things we think it means. It doesn't mean that men get their way all the time or that, you know, somehow they are the masters of their domain and everyone else must bow and kneel before their greatness. It means that when somebody has to go first, men go first. That when somebody has to die, men die. And when there's an argument and somebody has to lose, men lose. For the sake of peace. When somebody has to go without, they go without. When there's a sacrifice that has to be made... They make it. When the ship is sinking and there aren't enough lifeboats for everybody on the ship, it's the women and children first. That's what it means to be lead. It means you serve. It means you put your needs and your desires aside for the sake of seeing the other person's needs met. A leader isn't one that's above others. We've got to debunk that whole notion of leadership. A leader is one who willingly puts himself under others. And the reason we have such a sour taste in our mouth when it comes to this idea of authority is because of our experience of those who have been, who have been in authority and used it and abused it to crush others and exert their will over them. You know, authority in our culture is automatically seen as something bad and destructive. We can't even conceive of it being good. And healthy, and that's because sin so ro- has ruined the world and is so rampant in the world. It's it's ruined the idea of authority for us because we're so unfamiliar with it working the way it's supposed to. I mean, we're afraid of others having power over us because we've only seen that power abused. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, commented on this in a little essay he wrote called Equality, and he just to quote him for a minute, he says, "Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows." 
Now listen to what he says. But I do not think that the old authority of kings, priests, husbands, or fathers, and the old obedience of subjects, laymen, wives, and sons, was in itself a degrading or evil thing. I think it was as intrinsically as good and beautiful as the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He says, no, it was rightly taken away because man became bad and abused it. Now C.S. Lewis is saying this. He's saying the problem is not with the idea of headship. The problem, the problem is not with the idea of authority. The problem is, is how it's been done. That we're sinful, and so we're always abusing the power we have. Husbands do this with their wives. The Taliban does this with women in Afghanistan all the time. But what Lewis is saying is that even though it's abused, there's still something beautiful in what we're called to do and be and what God originally intended for the man's leadership. And of course, we ultimately see how this is supposed to work in the way that Jesus did it. And so the other key phrase here, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 11.3, is when we read that Paul says that Christ is the head of every man, that he is the one who has authority over us, and yet he did not use that authority to crush us. He did not use it to gain his own glory or crown for himself. He expressed that headship and that authority through sacrificial service. Jesus is the one who did not use his power and authority to promote his own agenda, but to meet our needs and love us. A head's job, that's what a head's job is, is to use authority to bless and serve and meet needs. That's what Jesus did. He didn't use his power to crush people. He was crushed. I mean, that's what the gospel teaches us. He didn't use us to make himself feel good. He loved us to his own hurt. He put our needs above his own comfort. He didn't lounge on the couch and bark out commands. He bit down and washed feet. And that's how a head acts. That's what real greatness is. I mean, that's what authority in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And that's what it means for men to lead. Not that they can do whatever they want with no repercussions, but that they get the... Hear this. For men to be the leaders and the ones who've been given authority means that they get to play the role of the one who gave up his life for the sake of love. And that's why we don't have to be afraid of this. Because the question gets asked all the time, well, if somebody has authority, what happens when he begins to abuse that authority? And the easy answer is, is that he forfeits his right to lead. If he uses leadership, you know, selfishly, or if he abuses it and starts doing things that are harmful to those under his care, the Bible's clear that brings condemnation and judgment. Because remember, every man who has authority, whether it be in his home or in the church or in his business, he is under the authority of Christ. And whatever authority he has, has been given to him by Jesus Christ, and he is only there to steward it for Christ's sake. Otherwise, it's completely illegitimate. So, see... Somehow, we've got to wrestle through this idea that as we talk about men and women, there is both the affirmation of their equality and also the idea of authority. Now, let's apply this uh, to our church and to this issue and then wrap it up. Now, we started this church uh, two years ago and, on, on, and in the beginning of the church, we had six teams that kind of did all of the work of putting worship services together and kids' classes and social events and all that kind of stuff. There were four men in leadership on those teams, and three women in leadership. So basically split right down the middle. You'll notice we have both men and women serve communion, which may or not be a big deal to you, according to your experience. For a lot of people, it's very shocking, um, which is strange to me, but there it is. Um, Mainly, it's been men who've done the bulk of the praying and the reading of Scripture in our services, but we're still figuring out how to work women into those roles too. We really believe that God has gifted women for ministry, and they should be free to exercise those gifts in the church without hindrance. But at the same time, 
We live in a culture where masculinity is undergoing a full frontal attack. I hope you know that. And the reality is that the church has been just utterly feminized. 65% of people who attend church are women. Culture-wide. And so we really feel like we want to publicly portray strong male leadership in our church because it's so absent in our culture. We want to get, we want to go after the men to be the leaders, the servants that God has called them to be in their community, at their jobs, in their homes. Because nobody's doing that. Now as we move, you know, so that, that's, that, that, that maybe helps you understand the feel of, of where we're trying to fall in this. We're trying to, to apply both the principle of equality and authority. But as we move toward officer nominations, that phrase there, and man, I didn't, we have a prayer thing back here, and usually we pray, and it's really wonderful. This morning we debated and argued verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2 the whole time and hardly prayed. Right? So we couldn't even get out of that room without arguing exactly what Paul might mean by 1 Timothy 2.12 when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over the man, over men. She is to remain quiet. Well, that can't mean that she's not allowed to speak in church because in verse, you know, verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 11, women are teaching and praying and speaking in church. So what does Paul mean? Our best application in trying to come underneath that scripture and make sense of it is that there's only one place where that really applies, and that is to this time and this service, that there's a certain authority that's being exercised in the preaching of the word in a Sunday morning corporate worship context. And for that reason, it should be reserved for the pastors and elders. Or those, the pastors and elders, you know, give the freedom to do it under their spiritual oversight. Because remember, elders are those who've been given spiritual authority over the rest of the church to exercise spiritual authority and oversight as those who will give an account on the day of judgment. Because they're men, because, because their office is vested with authority, that is the justification for why we've said that while we believe that women function in the New Testament church as deacons and we would love to see women functioning as deacons in our midst and doing the work of deacons, when it comes to the office of elder, it's reserved for men because it's an office that's vested with authority. And the Bible seems very clear that in the role of men and women, although there's equality, there is also the principle of authority. And so that's the, that's the justification, all that to say, exactly that. Now here's what I know. I, I'm fully aware... That means that some of the most qualified, most talented, most gifted, most spiritually mature people in our church are prohibited from consideration simply because they are women. And that is, I don't, I can't make sense of that. Except to say that somehow in the wisdom and economy of God, he's designed it and ordained it that the weak lead the strong. And that's how the work, it works in the kingdom, you know? And again, I just want you to know, I mean, I, I, feel, I don't I want to land the plane. I don't want to, you know, pastors about this time in the service can start to do... Come in for landing. Right? I want to land the plane. And, but I just want you to feel, I want you to feel, I literally, and I mean, I'm trembling because I, we are trying, you know, we are grappling, we are grasping towards the truth of these things and trying to make sense of how to be faithful to this stuff. We're going to disagree. We're going to have different opinions. And we, you know, we're going to change our mind and we're going to be teachable and we're going to figure out how all that works. But we are really, so that you know, we're really going after these two ideas in the scripture of what it means for us to, to affirm equality at the same time affirm authority and to call men and to call women to the places God's put them in the economy of salvation and in the church and in the home. 
And so I just want to say we have a great opportunity to live as a holy people. I mean, that's the end of the story is we have a great opportunity to live as a holy people, both in the way we lead and in the way we follow. And so I would just join you to pray with me as we come to the table and celebrate all that Jesus has done to save us uh, and to posture our hearts toward him in humility. So can we pray together at the end of this this morning, Father? You are, you are good and wise and holy and faithful, and we don't always understand you. We don't always understand the implications of what it is you're calling us to. We are, we're 2,000 years removed from this stuff, and it just doesn't make sense a lot of the time. And so we come, and we want to be people who tremble at your word. And so I just pray you help us, help us and teach us and, and um, equip us to be faithful to your scriptures, that we would listen to your voice and obey. But I pray... I pray um, and, and ask that you would make us champions of those who are abused and hurt by power structures that are, that are oppressive and cruel. And there are women all over the city who are being abused by, by men in the city. And I pray that you, you give us courage to, to say, that's enough of that. And to stand beside those who are being oppressed. But I also pray that you give us courage to call men to greatness to take up the role of leader, to be the one who plays the part of one who gives his life away for the sake of those he loves. The one who, if someone has to die, he's the one that dies. And Father, I pray for all of us that you would make us a community of people who, in affirming these things, that we, we restore the beauty and the glory of your image in men and women. You created us male and female, and I pray that, that you would work in our midst to restore uh, your image in our maleness and our femaleness and in our church, and that you would gain great glory uh, in, in our obedience to the roles that you call us to play. Help us to forgive one another and be patient with one another where we disagree. Uh, and please give us hearts where we continue to put ourselves under your word to make sense of it and to obey it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great opportunity then for us to come to this table. And I'll be honest with you, I'm so glad in light of all that we have just said, the only thing that makes sense of any of that is that at the heart of our life together is the story of redemption through Jesus Christ, which is why I'm so thankful that we get to recite the Apostles' Creed together, because this is our story. This is what we believe is reality. This is the worldview that we ascribe to, the things that we confess together in this ancient creed. So I'm going to ask that you would stand with me and say this together. Would you stand? In Christian in an age of unbelief, I ask you, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, I'm so thankful that we get to come and celebrate this meal together this morning because as we consider... I mean, let's just be honest with the hard reality of being called to submit yourself under uh, someone else and how difficult that is. The human heart was not made for, you know, the human heart was made for it, but the human heart rebels against it. And our desire is to be, 
to ascend to our own greatness. And so we come and we look at this bread and we take it in our hands and we take the cup to our lips and we are reminded that the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, the one who is the king of the universe, the one in whom and for whom and by whom all things have been made, who is the rightful uh, owner of all of our praise and worship and adoration and obedience, he came not as one who sought to be served, but as one who served and gave his life as a ransom for many. And so he's laid for us the foundation and the pattern for all headship, all leadership, for all of the ages until he comes again. And that's what's represented here in this body, which is his, in this bread, which is his body broken for us, and this cup, which is his blood shed for us. Here is how Christ loved you and his headship over you. He never took advantage. He doesn't crush. He was crushed. And the more we see him doing this for us, the more we can posture ourselves under him in submission and under those to whom he calls us in submission. So whether you're the one called to lead or whether you're the one called to follow, here is where you find the grace to do that faithfully. It's in coming and partaking of this meal. Uh, I would remind you as we get ready to do this that we ask you to think about a number of points of self-examination. The first is just this, that this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it belongs to those who have put their faith and trust in him. If you've not done that yet, I know many of the young kids are working through classes to prepare them for that. If you've not ever made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then we would say what you need this morning is not this bread and not this cup. You need Jesus Christ himself. And so as we pass, you know, as these elements uh, go around and as you come and partake of them, I would just ask you to sit in your seat and pray. And then after the service is over, come find me. Call me this week and come talk to me. And let's, I want to introduce you and bring you to Jesus. And then once you've come to Jesus, come to this table. But the second thing is just this, is that if there is a relationship in your life uh, that needs your attendance, this is a meal where we celebrate the reality of our being reconciled to the Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so to come and to celebrate that meal, not being reconciled to a brother or sister or a wife or a mother or a husband or whoever it might be, uh, would be hypocrisy. And the scripture is very clear to say that instead of coming here, what you need is not to take this bread and this cup. What you need is to go and to make that relationship right and then come back. There's no shame in saying, um, I've got work to do uh, to flesh out the reality of the gospel in my relationships. And so I'm going to refrain as a sign of repentance, to go and to make that right, and then to come back to the table. We'll celebrate this next month. So just be aware of those two points of self-examination as we come and get ready for this meal. The way we do this is, is there'll, be, there'll be people positioned at the front. Please come down the center aisle and take from either of the station on either side and then return on the outside to your seats. Once everybody's been served, then we will all uh, partake of the bread and the cup together, okay? Um, so let's just, I want to take about... 20 seconds of silence just to quiet our hearts and prepare ourselves to come to the table. If you'd just bow with me in, in prayer. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He was at, the, at dinner with his disciples and he took bread and he broke the bread and he said, This is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Take, eat, and drink. As you do so, you proclaim my death. And I will abide in you. And you will abide in me.
Uh, so let's pray together. And as I pray, if you're serving this morning, would you come? Uh, so as I pray, servers, come on up. Heavenly Father, thank you for the rich provision of your Son, Jesus, in this meal. Uh, that he is uh, the one who lived both as uh, the one in authority and as the one under authority perfectly. He is our righteousness in these things. Though we fail and stumble and fall, uh, we can look to him and he has fulfilled them perfectly. And so I pray that you would uh, remind us of him as we celebrate this meal. We pray that you would do what you promised to do and that is to draw near to us and abide with us even as we draw near to abide with you. And I pray that as you, that as we celebrate this meal together, you would come by the power of the Holy Spirit and form us into a community of people who represent his body broken and his blood shed in the way that we live with one another so that the world might see the good works that we do in your name and might give you glory and honor you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You come. Together, this is his body broken for you. And taking the cup together. This is his bloodshed for you. Now let's pray together. Uh, great God and Heavenly Father, we uh, come and, and we just give thanks for the way that you nourish us, uh, not just our bodies with food that we eat, but our souls with this bread and this cup. Uh, that we are weak and frail and prone uh, to... Uh, self-sufficiency which leads to exhaustion because we just do not possess in our own strength all that we need to live faithfully. And so how glad we are that we can come and be nourished of your Son and to take his body which is bread for us and his blood which is like drink for us. Uh, and we pray that, that as we gaze upon him in celebrating this meal together that our, that our faith would indeed be nourished that we would come to places of greater faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ to believe deeper and deeper in his love for us so that even as you call us to go and to lead, we would be those who lead after the pattern of Christ. Or as you call us to go and to, to, to come under and to submit and to follow, that we would be those who follow and submit even as Christ follow and submitted your will throughout his whole life. Lord Jesus, would you form yourself in us in whatever capacity it is you call us to. And may you gain great glory through that, and we pray. Uh, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it is our tradition on Communion Sundays to take a mercy offering, uh, as did the early church in their gatherings together. So uh, the men are going to come and they're going to pass out uh, the, the offering plates. As they do, we typically have um, a report on ministry activities 
uh, in the church. And so I, I just have a couple of announcements to make, and then I'm going to ask Terry to go ahead and lead us, even as we're finishing this offer- offering. Um, I am very pleased and, and, and grateful to God for all that He has been doing in our midst as a church and adding new staff members. And so I want Jody, before you leave, I just wanted one more time for you to be aware. Uh, Jody Grant, who's back in this back corner, uh, and about to walk out the door, God saw fit to provide her to our church to serve as children's ministry director. And we're very excited to have her here and her be working and doing that work. So please get to know her. If you would at all be interested in working with the children, she's the one to talk to and pray for her because that is a huge job uh, with all the kids that God has given us to do. So Jody, we're thankful for you being here and excited to have you uh, doing that for us. And then the other thing is it's Josh Nicholson, who I already alluded to in the service, is here working as our director to student ministries, uh, get to know him. He's a poor, starving college student, and unfortunately we haven't helped him much with that, with what we're paying him, so he needs you to invite him to your house. Uh, but if you do, uh, plan accordingly, because I've heard that he is um, epic in his ability to put away food. And so just be aware of that and, and make, make plans for that. Nathan's snickering back here. Um, but please get to know him. God has been good to us as a church in providing those two for us. We're excited about what he's doing uh, with, our, with our young people, uh, and so just thankful to God for those things. Continue to pray uh, that he would raise up laborers to go out into the harvest field, because he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so pray uh, that he would continue to do that. Uh, we need more community group leaders. We need uh, just all kinds of different needs we have in our church. And if you're interested and want to be put to work, uh, please call me and, and let me do that, okay?